Aya Cheke, Newe Nundawiangike Ne Pwandinge, Stories from Miamia Revitalization. Nepwandinge means learning from each other and is a phrase that is used to describe the relationship between the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma and Miami University. This is a podcast where we will talk about how the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma and Miami University learn from each other and how that has impacted the revitalization process for Miami people. Aya Mahkunzukwa Wainswaani, Nila Miamihwia. Hi everyone, my name is Kara Strauss and I am a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma. Aya Pekatua Wainswaane, Nila Miamihwia. Hi, I'm Christina Fox and I am also a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma. Aya Cheke, Meme Sheke Wainswaane, Nehe Napishi Nila Miamia. Hello, everyone. My name is George Ironstrack, and I'm also a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma. And our community, the, the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma, is also known in our language as uh, the Miamia, or the downstream people. And we're a small tribe of, of now just over 7,000, located in what is today uh, the corner of northeast Oklahoma. But our community is originally from homelands that include what is today Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and parts of Wisconsin and Michigan. Today, our citizens can be found living in diaspora in about 49 states, as well as outside the boundaries of what is today the U.S. We're coming to you today from Miami University, where we all work and where we're also all graduates. Um, Kara, myself, and George with master's degrees, and Tina with both a bachelor's and a master's. Miami University is a mid-sized public university, has about 17,000 undergraduate students, and is located within our people's traditional homelands in what is today Southwest Ohio in the town of Oxford. So at Miami University, we all work at the Miamia Center. It is an initiative of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma to serve the needs of Miamia people, Miami University, and partner communities through research, education, and outreach that promote Miamia language, culture, knowledge, and values. And we started this podcast uh, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but now that we're all allowed to be in the same place again, we get to record our second episode at Williams Hall. So mission away to the folks over in communications for letting us use their fancy podcasting studio. In our last episode, we started to dig deeper into the story of the revitalization of Miamia Tawenge, the Miami language. And we often talk about this work of language revitalization as a garden. And we introduced three people who are some of the first gardeners who began to clear the land and prepare to plant the seeds that would eventually grow. Today, Julie Olds is the cultural resource officer for the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma. Daryl Baldwin is the executive director of the Miamia Center. And David Costa is the head of the language research office at, at the Miamia Center. We left off this story just as the tribe had approached their friends at Miami University to see if they would support the work of language and cultural revitalization by creating a position at the university. And in today's episode, we will talk about how this work becomes more formalized, both within the Miami tribe as well as at Miami University. Yeah, so in this episode, we're going to, going to expand the, the garden metaphor 
and explore how the garden grew from just a, a language garden, one focused on the revitalization of Miao Miao Tawenge and some aspects of culture, to a garden that was really focused on the revitalization of every aspect of, of community life. And all three of our gardeners, uh, Daryl and David and especially Julie, um, had a lot to say about this transformation of the, of the garden from a language garden to a community garden. Though my position with the tribe started as a language clerk, as language and culture started to sort of swirl back into not only interest, but use and growth, other interests and even responsibilities started to grow some roots and become um, viable again, or maybe even for the first time. So everything from our duties um, under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act about that same time start to, because we, again, we're starting to, we're not only learning how to talk, but the, the culture and knowledge that's embedded in that entire ball of knowledge starts to change um, what we do and how we do it and how we talk about it. So what we're hearing here from Julie is that when we begin to work in our language garden, we're pushed to start to focus on responsibilities that at first glance don't seem to have a direct link to language. For example, Julie mentions that we took on greater responsibility in protecting our ancestors' graves, among many other critical cultural practices. Kinde, Chachenza, you've used the word we here quite a bit. And when you're saying we, who exactly is it that you're talking about? Is it the Miamia community, the Miamia Center? The three of us at this table. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good point. So I think we'll we'll find this as a challenge throughout this episode. This storytelling about revitalization in the Miamia community can be a bit messy because we all wear so many hats in our community. The three of us are all travel members, my university grads and Miamia Center employees. So that leads to like us kind of a confusing use of the the inclusive uh, we or uh, uh, Kiluna in, in our language. Um, in this particular case, uh, because, you know, NAGPRA is a very, very specific set of responsibilities, the we here is really about the Culture Resource Office and the folks specifically within that office who focus on the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act um, in their work to care and look after the, the graves um, for our ancestors. Um, and so what, I, what I'm getting at or trying to get at in summarizing Julie's Julie's um, quote here is that this growth pushes those who work for the Miami tribe, like Julie, to take on responsibilities that went far beyond just language. As these early gardeners start to realize that the garden is more than just a language garden, um, they realize and recognize that the tribe needs a person or a team of people to focus on this garden full time. And this leads to the establishment of the Culture Resource Office first first known as a cultural preservation office. So we knew that we had to establish something that would be that knowledge gathering vehicle that would supply what became known about the same time as the cultural, it was originally born as the cultural preservation office. I was sort of just naturally sort of moved into it, not because I was the ideal person for it, it was because I was boots on the ground 
and available and willing. And I've never been so grateful to be those things. So the this cultural preservation office, which was originally was eventually renamed the cultural resources office, was an important part of the community gardening work. Um, and that the cultural resource office was um, taking the first steps in weeding the community garden bed. Um, and this is an important metaphor we use a lot in our community, especially among revitalizationists and teachers, to recognize that during the period of language silence and cultural loss of the late 1800s and early 20th century, many weeds, foreign ideas, and concepts took root in our community garden. Julie, working together with Daryl and David, as well as elected tribal leaders, had to figure out how to make this community garden a Miamia garden and remove harmful ideas, concepts, and beliefs that came from Euro-American culture, as well as um, intertribal ideas that, that might not have been harmful, um, but these ideas and concepts weren't Miami on their route. They came from other communities or from intertribal, intertribal spaces, so they're indigenous in origin, but they don't always necessarily reflect Miami on norms over time. There was and will always be space for an intertribal garden in, uh, that our community manages and certainly participates in, but this work helped us recognize that that garden um, should be kept somewhat separate from our Miami garden. Um, rather than, than mixing the plants and seeds from the two gardens in a way that we lose sense of, you know, what is a Miamia concept and idea. This era of weeding and planting in the community garden was really delicate work. And in the early years, Julie was especially good at keeping her ears to the ground in the communities that she could take into account input from the community about what they wanted planted in the garden and how they felt when certain weeds um, were pulled or removed from the garden. And Julie's ear to the ground about what the community needed had a major influence on the Miami Center being established. So Kara did a wonderful job of recapping our last episode, but in case you need a reminder anyway, Daryl Baldwin came to the Miami University as the first and at the time only employee of what was called the Miamia Project back in 2001. And this was after Julie appealed to Miami University for help. And Murtis Powell said, yes, it's going to happen here. Uh, so we'll let Julie explain what the Miamia Project was from her perspective. We started referring to it more as research and development, gathering, reclaiming knowledge that is out there, pulling it internally, assessing it, even filtering it, we learned quickly and um, that there would be the need to, because so much uh, we were pulling from written history, you know, written resources that had been written by someone besides Miami people. And so we had to build expertise to filter those resources in a way to uh, not only remove, shall we say, the voice of the writer, but to extract and ascertain the accuracy and appropriateness and turn that into something that could be delivered to the community. I think this also speaks to how the Miamia Center and the Cultural Resources Office still work today. And all of that started with Daryl 
in a broom closet on the third floor of King Library, and nobody knew where to put him. He kind of bounced around from office to office, and eventually he landed in Bonham House, and he he has quite the description of how, as our staff grew, we ended up taking ownership of Bonham House. You know, if you think about the process for establishing Bonham House, <laughs> I look back on that. They put me there because it was the only vacant place. It was this old building, had purchasing in there, and it had a couple of vacant offices upstairs. All right, let's put the let's put the Miami project up there. And fortunately, we got stuck in a building with a bunch of people who were on the verge of retiring, <laughs> and who were never intended to be permanent there anyhow. So as they retired, you know, with the help of of Jim and others, and me kept pressing uh, purchasing, I kept taking one office at a time, kept clicking it off until until it finally came to head. <laughs> As he mentions in that clip, we just needed more offices. As the community was more interested in different things, we needed staff to, as Julie said, kind of filter and figure out how to deliver this to the community in, in a good way. Um, one of the key staff members at Miami University was Bobby Burke. She was the liaison between the Miami Tribe and Miami University, and she was instrumental in helping Daryl connect with Miami students on campus. So if you remember, we've had students at Miami University since 1991, but they were kind of out on their own at times. And Bobby really helped Daryl make connections with them and bring them together and create that Miamia community on campus. She also assisted in laying the foundation for a sustainable relationship with the university. We weren't always sure how long the Miamia project was going to last. It was only intended to be three years at the beginning. So... We have Daryl kind of describing what that was like, uh, his work with Bobby to make sure that the Miamia project was going to stick around. What was very present early on for many years, probably the first dozen years, was the sense of vulnerability. Bobby and I both always worried when somebody retired or left Miami, he's like, oh gosh, you know, who are we going to get to that understands what we're doing, who's willing to support us, and all of that. And so we both worried about that a lot and we don't worry about that anymore today. We are very fortunate that all of the relationships that we have built over the last 50 years with this relationship between the Miami Tribe and the Miami University have recognized the value to both communities and now now we feel pretty secure here. Um, and that is in part due to our name change. We started out as the Miamia Project and in the university world, um, becoming a center reflects more of a permanence. And in 2013, the Miamia Project officially became the Miamia Center. Um, so that brought a lot of change for us, uh, including an expression of commitment to supporting the center and our work, both from the university and the tribe. We also got more attention so Daryl has talked several times about flying under the radar and just getting stuff done and making personal connections. Becoming a center brought more attention to us on campus. And, you know, one advantage of that is now we have a lot more resources. And 
that that lets us do more work for both communities. But one of the downsides is, of growth is you have to change how you work with other people. So when the Miyamia project was still small, it was a lot of Daryl and Julie communicating very directly to each other to meet the the needs of our community. Uh, but you you add more staff, you have more community requests. Now that that gets a little more complicated and, and harder to do. So today, a lot of times you will see tribal leadership at events, both at the university and community events. And that communication between not just Daryl and Julie, but the elected leadership is a reflection of how much all of this has grown and is supported by everybody. So up till this point, we've heard a lot about the work of Julie and Daryl, but we haven't forgotten about David either or how integral his work was to the process of language revitalization. David graduated with his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley in 1994. And when we spoke with him, David remembered the struggle of working full time and trying to finish his dissertation. I would literally work it. Clorox all day long and do linguistics in the evening, which astounds me now that I had the energy to do that. Uh, that was how my dissertation was written. So after completing his degree, David continues to live in California, and he would work on occasional projects with the tribe, but mostly he's working full-time at other companies because there was no linguistics job for him. Um, the tribe certainly did not have the money to support one in those early years. And so he continues to do other things. But he would also continue to make visits to Oklahoma. Um, most years he would end up there on vacation from his other jobs. And this continues until the middle of the 2000s. David, about 2005, um, starts to work full-time for the tribe, and he talks about his transition to that work in this way. It was mostly at a long distance for quite some time, just inter, you know, interspersed with visits about once or twice a year, and that it went on that way until the early 2000s when I was officially brought on board. As you probably know, and I don't recall if I said this, in 2000, I actually got hired at a, my, what uh, was actually the first time in my life I had a linguistics job. Up until this point, because David was working from California, there was no way for him to work directly for the Miamia Center. And so he starts to work for the Miami tribe as an independent contractor. And this is how it stayed until about 2014, when he was actually able to come on to the Miamia Center remotely. Throughout his linguistics work, David always used technology and knew that it was something that was important to his work. Starting in the early 1990s, he was actually managing most of his linguistics research by maintaining a Word document, um, something that actually continues to today, but it isn't useful for a variety of reasons. It's way too long. It's complicated. It's very hard to use if you don't have David's brain. And so as the work went on, David, along with the rest of the language revitalization team, started to look for technology that would be helpful to this work. But nothing quite fit. 
Um, most of the technology that's used for linguistics is meant for field work and not archival research. So it really was not allowing our linguistics team to, to do the work that they needed to do. And like so many other times through this process, they realized that if they wanted a tool that would help with archival language revitalization work, they were going to have to create it themselves. And so the Miamia Center actually received a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities in 2012 to create this software, something that would allow the team to input this archival information. Um, and they began the process of creating what was known as the Miami, Illinois Digital Archive, or MIDA, which today is known as the Indigenous Languages Digital Archive, or ILDA. And David told us a little bit about his part in the creation of this software. I got this call to help consult for MIDA. I thought, well, you know, I mean, at the time, I don't remember thinking this could change everything. I honestly don't remember thinking that. I think, yeah, we definitely need some sensible place to rope everything together where it can be treated like a real database rather than searched as a word file. Everyone knew that technology would be important to this ongoing language revitalization work, but no one realized how quickly it would change the way that this work gets done. And David talked to us a little bit about why this software is now so important to his daily work doing this, this linguistics um, research and analysis. That was a revelation to me when suddenly that whole manuscript in one year became searchable. You could literally search on English words, search on French words, and it's like suddenly... I don't know. I mean, I don't know if anybody has noticed this, but suddenly my papers became really different. Uh, Before we move forward, I want to point out that um, we have uh, somebody that David is mentoring, another linguist, Hunter Lachlan. Hunter and I went to a class visit recently, and he mentioned David's uh, giant word doc. We, we kind of call it David's Bible. Um, they were appalled <laughs> that he still does all of this work in a word document. As they should be. They were absolutely appalled. Uh, but it's my understanding that Hunter is slowly figuring out what David has written in this giant word doc and is migrating it to Ilda, which... <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> it's it's giant. We all are for the time one day when David is no longer around to interpret the said like said uh, Google or Word document. So one thing I want to point out is most of the people we've been talking about up till this point are Miamia. Um, it I think is a little bit more clear of why they started to do this work or why they continue to do this work. But David has been studying Miamia Tawenge for over 30 years now. And so we wanted to hear from him a little bit more about why he continues to do this work. Just at a purely intellectual level, it's incredibly fulfilling, right? It's, it's, a, it's basically this, it's essentially a lifelong puzzle. There are still things I figure out now that are only becoming clear to me in the last year or so. You know, and I've been at this since 88. Today, David continues to work for the Miamia Center as a linguist, and as Tina mentioned, he's actually mentoring the next generation, which is something that happens quite often in the Miamia Center. Um, but now David works here from Ohio, 
Um, he's physically with us in the Miami Center. Him and his wife moved to Oxford in 2017, um, which was not a small transition for people who had spent their entire lives in California. It's um, kind of a, it's a standing joke in the center that David didn't move in 2017, but rather Jared Baldwin, Daryl's son, who's a language teacher in community, actually moved him. So Jared, or Chingui, as we call him in the community, drove across the continent uh, with his brother-in-law, Ryan, to move David and, and Mary, uh, David's wife, move all their stuff from, from California to, to Oxford, Ohio, in a, in a big truck. Um, and so we always we always uh, make a joke about that and the the giant piano that nearly broke all of our backs trying to get off the truck that day. Um, and it's just it's a great example of how all of this is so personal in our community, right? These connections between folks are not just work connections; they're they're much more than that. And that's why the we is so confusing. Yeah, yeah. So, Hui Kanaka, we've covered a lot of ground so far in this particular episode. And um, the three of us have said this before, but it's really interesting covering um, these moments that, that many of us lived through um, and realizing, you know, we, we experience them from sort of one perspective as students or, or you know, younger teachers in community. And, you know, in, in having these conversations with Daryl, David, and Julie, we're really learning about how there's there's always much more going on behind the scenes than you realize when you're experiencing yourself. Um, and so it's really interesting to hear um, from our three gardeners about what they think about the state of the Miamia Community Garden in the here and now of 2023. It always and to this day makes more sense. Um, that the Miyamiya Center is that arm of research and development, that we have the relationship that we do with Miami University, that they are, as an institution, completely committed to our commitment to our community, that their willingness for the Miyamiya project to be born and grow into and be recognized as the Miyamiya Center and given every opportunity to grow up, out, and beyond anybody's expectation is what, you know, it's what has made this work. And the Cultural Resource Office being the entity of the tribe uh, responsible at the direction of tribal leadership to manage and distribute, share, include all these things. The knowledge that is coming from the research work that is housed within and conducted from the Miyamiya Center, it's, it's, a, it's a channel. Uh, again, I, I go back sort of that, that river reference. You know, there are tributaries to it, but that main flowing uh, body of, of, of knowledge um, originates from the work of the center. That that kind of ties back into what the clip we had from Julie earlier about needing staff to figure out the best way to deliver information. Um, I think in our interview, but it's not necessarily in a clip. She she called the CRO. Um, the Cultural Resources Office and the Miami Center kind of a hand in glove 
um, the Miyamiya Centers, the research and development. We, we have experts who know how to filter out information and then the cultural resources office with their connection to the community can really decipher that and put it in a deliverable for the community. And I, I've seen both sides of that and it's, it's a lot of work and I appreciate it just as a citizen getting resources because history, not necessarily, history is not necessarily my thing so not having to, as Julie said, take the writer out of that information is super helpful for my own learning just as a, as a citizen and a learner. Yeah, I think that, um, that this really gets at the heart of the way we work today and the value of the work that we do today. Um, and when the three of us spoke with Daryl, he added to, to these important points from Julie with some details about his perspective on the scope of our work today. One of the most important things we've been able to do, and I'm, I'm saying this reflecting back on the very, very early days when archive-based research for revitalization was always looked at kind of like, eh, maybe, not sure that's possible. Reviving a dead language, I'm not too sure that's really something that can be done. I think what we have done is we've demonstrated that although things will never be the way they were, that utilizing archives for the revitalization of lots of things beyond language is very, very powerful for a community like ours. And that not only is the content, once it can be extracted, analyzed, and made useful, but that there is a tremendous amount of capacity building that has to be built around that so that it's sustainable and that it can grow in a way that it's more meaningful for a tribal community like ours. I think that whole entire package that we present as the research and educational development arm of a tribe is a powerful testament to what is possible when a tribal community like ours and our stakeholders, our friends, our partners can rally around something and actually make it something very tangible for, for people trying to heal from what's, what's happened to us in the last 200 years. So I think Daryl really beautifully highlights um, you know, taking the, the long view back across all of the, the history that we've summarized over these two episodes and really, you know, focusing on that, you know, first there was a demonstration it was possible to revitalize a language from archival documents, but then that it was a lot more than just language, um, which isn't surprising to us today, but I think it was surprising in, in that moment to realize just how much this was about more than language and how this led us on a path towards uh, ongoing and um, I think a, a currently really positive sense of healing in, in community. Um, and then he's emphasizing, um, you know, in our current moment, the capacity building as, you know, all three of these people we joke are the 1962 club, right? which, you know, we, we don't plan on ever really accepting the reality of it, um, but they're all going to retire around the same time. 
And so they're thinking and talking about the future of the effort. And, you know, what that looks like in terms of capacity building here is that from, you know, from one employee in the Miamia project to, you know, now here at the Miamia Center, having seven different offices staffed by 19 full and part-time employees um, that are all taking on different aspects of this broad community gardening work um, on behalf of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma within within this office in Bonham House at Miami University. Yeah, over these last two episodes, we've talked about the story that started with these three different gardeners who didn't know each other, who lived across the country from one another, who came together to really cultivate a shared space where they could begin this Miamia Garden, start the process of of language revitalization, something that has now grown larger than any of the three of them would have imagined when they started this work and has allowed our Miamia community to see, I think, what's what's possible today um, and not necessarily know what that future is going to look like. Um, but we certainly have a better understanding of, of what's possible and, and are helping to drive this process forward. But we couldn't have ever done that without the work of these three individuals. And so we have to say, Mishinewe, thank you to all three of them. Because without them, who knows what, what this would have looked like and where we would be today. Mm-hmm. So I want to end with a really great clip from Julie, but just to kind of reiterate what everybody's saying, like we don't know what the future holds. Nobody knew what would come of the Miamia project or going further back, the the language grant that kind of brought Julie, David, and Daryl together. Um, even as individuals, I don't think they knew what their interest would would begin. Um, the seeds that they were planting and and how much everything has grown. So kind of where we are today, um, as Mayma Shikia said, we have a huge staff at the Miamia Center in comparison to 2001. Um, We are also uh, increasing staff in the Cultural Resources Office. Um, We now have an extension office in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is the area of one of our biggest population centers. So we have staff there, um, we being the tribe, by the way. Um, We have such an increase in community programming. Um, Alone, we have four summer programs that occur in two different locations. Kara, I'm going to defer to you here uh, <laughs> because we're coming up on graduation at Miami University. How many graduates of the Miamia Heritage Program are we going to be at? Yeah, in a couple of weeks, we'll graduate seven more students, and we will be at 115 graduates of this program. But I also think it's fair to point out that with somewhere between 40 and 50 students um, on campus right now, that this number is just going to continue to grow exponentially and will likely double in the next decade or so. Mm -hmm. So the community is saying, give us more, and we're only growing to accommodate that. Um, but 
Julie has such a great way of describing what all of this means and um, what it looks like in our community. So we'll, we'll leave you with a quote from Julie. We've empowered families to return to being Miami families. And, but within that, because of the heritage class and because of our programs uh, through Imam Wachiki, we, we have that strange um, shift that so many tribes who didn't experience removal in the fashion that we did to the extent that we did, we have this sort of upside down identity internally where we have young people who know more than their grandparents. And we've sort of shifted maybe what I would call the natural um, process of, of, um, of transfer of, of, of knowledge within families and within the collective communal family from elders down to the children. We now are putting seeds in the hands of young people to carry home where those are being planted and changing their families. And we have many elders who, as they're getting ready to leave this, this life in this world, their pride and their identity has been impacted by the work collectively, but maybe more specifically for some of them by their own grandchildren, bringing back what they were not allowed to have. And it's changing, it's changing everything. Well, I don't think any of us um, could put it better than that. So I think we're just going to leave the story there for today. So thanks everyone for listening to us. We do need to say thank you to some folks who have helped us to put this project together. First to our Miamia community for their love, support, and active involvement in this revitalization process. Of course, to Daryl Baldwin, Julie Olds, and David Costa, um, both for their hard work that brought us here, but also for the time that they put into interviews for this podcast. Neway to Jonathan Fox for sound editing, as well as Megan Sekulich for our cover art. And finally, um, Apusha Neway, thank you again to Miami University Communications Department for the use of their podcast studio.